0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am one of your hosts, Stephanie Bunnick, and I am here with one of your other hosts, Liel Libowitz
1: I think we're alone now. Alone there now. There doesn't seem to be Mark Oppenheimer around.
0: So we've given Dad the week off, and we are here to tell you about some really fun things that we have been working on behind the scenes from our closets, from our basements, from our attics over the pandemic. We have some new shows, and we want to tell you all about them today.
1: Well, you have been binging on The Queen's Gambit. We have been producing podcasts for you to binge on. Before
0: we get to any new shows, Liel, give us a a take one update.
1: So one of the most charming traditions in Jewish life is this thing called Daf Yomi, which literally means a page a day. It's a tradition of reading just one page of the Talmud a day, finishing the whole cycle in a convenient seven and a half year stretch. Last January was the completion of the cycle and something like 95,000 people gathered in Giant Stadium back when you could still gather in stadiums to celebrate this accomplishment of having read the entire Talmud together one page at a time. And so I'm watching this and I've always had a curiosity about uh, about Tafiomi and, and you know, love reading and studying Talmud. And so I, I called uh, our friend and producer, Josh Cross, and said, hey, you know, kind of a a good thing. One day we should have a Talmud podcast. And Josh said, well, why not start one when the next Daf Yomi cycle starts? And I said, well, because it's Thursday now and the next cycle starts on Monday.
0: You're like, I was thinking we could have a seven-year lead time. Correct. Taking
1: a seven and a half year old commitment with a day's notice to produce it isn't the most prudent thing. And Josh said, you know, we'll figure it out as we go along. That's how we always do things. And so here we are. We launched last January. And the idea behind the show is very, very simple. Many of us have, have heard about the Talmud, are curious about the Talmud, have seen a page of Talmud. It's this beautiful kind of like typographically set things with, with different kind of boxes and hyperlinks connecting to one another in commentary and footnotes. But really, when you try to read it, it's dense. Most of it is in Aramaic. Sometimes it takes a lot of background knowledge to understand. But once you begin to decipher it, you realize that the concepts these rabbis are talking about are so incredibly universal and so incredibly relevant to us today because they're really figuring out how to live. And not just how to live. This book was compiled during a time in which the history of our people wasn't at its peak. This is post uh, the destruction of the Second Temple. This is in a time of exile. So the Talmud really is a sort of a, to quote another Jewish poet, a Manual for Living with Defeat. It's a book that shows you how to overcome even what you think are tremendously difficult circumstances and find joy and meaning and mindfulness in unexpected corners. So the idea was to give 10 minutes of that a day and invite not only rabbis and scholars, but also people who may find some measure of relevance, some measure of of connection. So we've had, you know, Congresswoman Katie Porter and Enos Cantor of the Boston Celtics and Kurt Fuller from Hollywood, California. All these people who found little nuggets, little tidbits of truth and beauty in the Talmud to share with us. And all that. In 10 minutes or less each day. What could be better? You know, it's, it's
0: very, very, very old school, right? Uh, in, in that it's a Talmud podcast. But it, there's a lot that sort of hinges in this like mindfulness, meditative world that we're in right now. So I like that. I mean, look, I've been on the show a few times. I usually have to talk about like living in a small apartment. <laughs> I think men wearing sandals.
1: Footwear and chefing are are your two things.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the niche that that you've created for me there. And then, of course, Mark Oppenheimer, the corduroy rub, has made several appearances. Producer Josh Cross, producer Sarah Fredman Ader. You sort of hear some of your favorite people um, if you listen in to Take One. So, Leo, you are sharing with us a very special episode. Will you you give us the 411, as no one says?
1: As we say (laughs) in the year 2003. This is indeed a very special episode because it features one of my favorite people in the world. This is a very special episode in as much as that it's also quite longer than other episodes. I really let this conversation run because I really think this particular guest is someone we should pay attention to. Look, if you listen to me here on Unorthodox, you know me as your lovable, bearded, hardcore maniac. But I feel very, very strongly that the death penalty is an unconscionable, uh, immoral, and objectionable punishment. And I welcome to take one uh, to discuss a mention of the death penalty and the Talmud. Sister Helen Prejean, who you might have seen portrayed by Susan Sarandon in Dead Men Walking, and you might have uh, read in uh, a couple of books in which she details her lifelong commitment to uh, halting the death penalty and to counseling death row inmates as they sort of struggle to come to terms with what they've done and to keep their dignity uh, and their humanity as, as they await their execution by the state. It's a very loaded conversation. It's about the differences between the Catholic and the Jewish traditions when it comes to the death penalty. It's about what you learn when you spend your days sitting quite literally with a condemned. I, I was sort of teary when, when we spoke, uh, and I hope you will be too.
0: We are about to listen to Liel's Take One episode with Sister Helen Prejean. And coming up later in the episode, you're going to hear our brand new show, Anxiously.
1: Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one, just page of Talmud. On today's page, Pesachim 75, we read about a woman who has transgressed against the laws of the Torah and is being executed. The rabbis then discuss the manner of her execution. When executing someone, the Talmud tells us, select for him a kind death. Even when someone must be executed, his dignity should be protected. He should be executed in the most comfortable way possible. As someone who is deeply opposed to the death penalty, this passage troubled me. And so I feel privileged to welcome to the show one of my personal heroes. She is Sister Helen Prijan, the author of the book Dead Men Walking, which was turned into a motion picture starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn, and one of our clearest and strongest voices in moral opposition to the death penalty. Sister Helen, thank you so much for being our guest today.
2: I've always had great admiration for the tablet. Glad to be a part of this.
1: The pleasure is all mine. And I want to start off with the the most general question. You know, th- there are many political issues on which I'm open-minded and sort of giddily unorthodox. But the death penalty is really one I feel very strongly about. I I, I will be very honest. I see it as, as an almost, you know, as an absolute moral evil. And as our clearest and most courageous voice on this issue, assuming some of our listeners out there are of two minds—you know, generally uneasy about the whole notion of execution—but moved by maybe moved by the descriptions of the convict's horrible crimes to consider the possibility of of death row, I assume this is this is one of these questions that you get very frequently. But but how do you address someone who is genuinely conflicted about this topic?
2: Everybody is conflicted. First of all, because of the outrage we feel at the death of innocent people. I mean, we do have to attend to that. There is moral outrage in hearing about a mother hijacked, carjacked with her children, and, and brutally killed. We can't pass over that. We have to attend to it. And it is outrage we feel at the crime. But also in our souls is the inviolable dignity of each human life. But we have to get there with people who have done murder. I had a wonderful editor that helped me shape the story in Dead Man Walking. And in the first draft, I'd concentrated too much, too long, on simply the human rights of the person who should not be executed. And my editor said to me, if you do not attend in the first 10 pages to the horror of the crime that this man, Patrick Sonier, and his brother killing two teenage kids in cold blood shooting them point blank in the back of the head and show your own outrage, nobody is going to follow you into, finally, the humanity of the one to be executed. We shouldn't do that. So I want to say everybody has a certain amount of ambivalence about the death penalty. On the one hand, look at the horror of the crime, what is justice and what does that person deserve? And then on the other hand, or we as a society, and let's just look and see now what we have set in motion to decide that some of these people should die.
1: You have written at length about, about your own spiritual journey. One thing that I've heard you say in several interviews, which, which always struck me as, as so profoundly moving, and I've meditated on this frequently, is you saying to the men you meet on death row, you are more than your most terrible deed containing as you just said the truth and the difficulty of of the horrible crimes how do we get to the point in which we could look at a person and say this what kind of work spiritually must be done
2: yes and the work of us who have been witnesses say my job really has been to be a witness to what i've seen and when i visited with the first man the very first man that I visited on death row, Patrick he the one who had killed two teenage kids. I have to tell you, I was nervous as I waited. The guards had taken me to the waiting room and locked me in and said, we'll go get your man. And I was nervous about him because I thought, well, I've never really talked for two hours to a murderer before and he's written nice letters, but I'm gonna actually look into his eyes and meet him in person. And when I saw his face, The first thing was, oh, my God, he's a human being. The humanity was clearly there. He was a human being. And that gave rise. There's a transcendence in human beings, this inviolable dignity that human beings can always change, can always grow, and that no human being can be identified solely with any action, good as well as bad, that we are all, when it comes to doing bad things, worth more than that one terrible act. And I saw it. It was deep. It was existential. It never left me. And so I always say that to them. And when I write to them, I say to them, remember, you have a dignity that no one can take from you. You are a son of God or a daughter of God. And I just think it's an absolute truth that you existentially have to come to it. One of the reasons we still have the death penalty is that people are separated from actually witnessing. What it means for the government to take an alive human being, no matter how much he or she has grown, no matter how much they've deepened, no matter how remorseful they are. One time I had a guard say to me in the death house, The man we're killing tonight is a different man from that young, brash animal that came screaming in this prison, cursing God and everybody, and who it is that we're killing tonight. So it's this thing of the inviolable dignity, which, of course, after 1,300 years of dialogue, the Catholic Church has reached in Pope Francis in August 2018, changing the Catechism and recognizing that we can never give over to government that power to decide that there are some acts that human beings, that citizens commit, where they can make a decision to kill them. Never. You can never give government that power.
1: I'm glad you brought this up. I want to talk a little bit about the differences maybe in our in our faith tradition, like everything else in in rabbinic Judaism. This issue too, of the death penalty is a highly complex one. famously, it was said that back in the time when Jews were governed by the Sanhedrin or the sort of quorum of 70 rabbis who adjudicated over all communal matters, if that Sanhedrin put one man to death once in seven years, it was called a murderous Sanhedrin. And there's there's a really big discussion between the rabbis. Some of them seem to think in the Talmud that killing a person, no matter for what infraction, even though the tradition says that there are sins for which the death penalty is the only suitable punishment. And other rabbis say, no, we need to have uh, the death penalty on the books as a sort of deterrent. But we also have to be deeply mindful that this is a measure that we use extremely sporadically, if ever. When you come across this kind of inner argument and, and thinking about it from the dialogue that the Catholic Church itself has has had around that, or internal dialogue that the Catholic Church itself has had around this issue, Does this conversation resonate with you? Uh, Tell us a little bit about how you see the difference between our two faith traditions.
2: Well, there's a similarity, of course. Anyone who makes law is trying to set boundaries beyond this point, no further. Or up to this point is where we draw a line on this side, life on this side, death. And where it gets to be unscrutable, Of course, that we cannot figure out, no matter how we try to delineate our theory of these crimes that deserve death, we immediately come into questions. Now, which murders don't deserve death? When Gregory Georgia in the United States in 1976 put the death penalty back, supposedly they gave a criteria that was really impossible, that nobody has really known what it meant. It's only to be reserved, they said, for the worst of the worst murders. And nobody knows what that means. I mean, if anyone kills my mother, unique, irreplaceable human being, it is the worst of the worst. So supposedly, they were going to put out guidelines to guide juries so that they wouldn't be giving death for, in quotes, ordinary murders, garden variety murders. And it's impossible. So first, the criteria was impossible that they said. And then the other thing that made it unworkable, I just wrote the Nation magazine, gave discretionary power to prosecutors to go for death or not. And we just witnessed Trump and Attorney General Bullock going for death because they had the discretionary power to do so. People were on death row. They had been sentenced. It was up to them to start the death machine or not. And for 17 years... The attorney general in the United States had not moved to execute people, but because they had the discretionary power, they decided to, and they killed 13 human beings. The last one, just five days before Biden would come into office, who we knew would not execute, he had declared that he was against the death penalty and was going to be in federal execution. So you get into all these vagaries and fallible aspects of human beings that enter into the process. On paper, it might seem good and righteous, but in actuality, when you go to carry it out, it's impossible.
1: And so when you read a page uh, like the page we read today in Talmud that uh, discusses a person who is sentenced to death for transgressions, and one of the rabbis say we must remember the verse and you shall love your fellow as yourself. And and the the Talmud continues to say when executed someone select for him a kind death. Even when someone must be executed, his dignity should be protected. He should be executed in the most comfortable way possible. Does that resonate in any way, or is that some uh, or is that to you an an attempt to avoid the more profound notion of whether or not the execution should have taken place in the first place?
2: No, it absolutely resonates. Because you have, once you enter into this whole mindset that they're going to allow the government to execute, there are some thinking it should be as painful as possible. Because look at the pain. It's always making that false equivalency of, we use the pain that they inflicted on their victims to determine how we act. So this thing of pain or no pain in fact when lethal injection was introduced one of the arguments given was it was going to be more humane more humane than being electrocuted with 1900 bolts going through your body more humane than hanging more humane than being shot and you start going through all these methods of killing people that you'll just be put to sleep problem emerges almost immediately That who are the people putting the drugs together to kill a human being in a way that they are not going to wake up and be in excruciating pain when the potassium chloride, which is the most lethal, like an acid, goes and hits their heart that they're so deeply under they don't feel it. But then you had someone like Justice Scalia, a Catholic Supreme Court justice. Who just said in the discussions about whether or not lethal injection was painful or not, he said they're supposed to feel pain. And that's that mentality of they deserve what they get, and pain is part of what we want to inflict on them. But the deepest traditions, in all the spiritual traditions, when you go back and in the Torah, be holy as I am holy, and God's holiness is around loving your neighbor as yourself to look out for the widow and the orphan it's around compassionate be compassionate as your heavenly father is compassionate is jesus and jesus brought it in further saying to love not only your neighbor as yourself but your enemies that hatred won't overcome you so that you become like the enemy and become persons of rage and vengeance and wanting to do to them what they did to you And so it's very resonant with me, this whole thing of to kill them with kindness. I think that comes out of, in any legal scholar who would be looking at it in the discussion, we want to be as kind as possible. But in reality, to kill, deliberately kill a conscious, imaginative human being who anticipates death and dies inside a thousand times before they die, It can never be compassionate. In fact, it's the practice of torture, because the definition of torture in the UN Convention Against Torture specifies that the nature of torture is an extreme mental or physical act on someone rendered defenseless. And so when you're taken from your cell and walked across a room and strapped down and killed, how can you... Not say that this is an extreme mental torture, that these are the last minutes of my life. I'm going to say goodbye to everything I know on earth It's being taken from me. There is no way that we can ever impose a death. And how kindly we say we're going to do it compassionately, because you can never take away that extreme mental torture of death being imposed on the person rendered defenseless.
1: Sister Helen, there are tears in my eyes and hope in my heart and deep, deep, deep gratitude to you for everything that you've done and for everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for being our guest.
2: I have to do it. I got a moral imperative because of what I've seen. Thank you.
1: Amen. Thank you. I hope you like this conversation, and if you do, I am certain that you would enjoy our ten minutes a day introduction to Talmud, Jewish ideas, history, everything you need to start the morning on a, you know, a bit more of an elevated spiritual feel-good note.
0: So you can get Take One wherever you're listening to Unorthodox, just search Take One in your podcast app. You can also access it directly at tabletmag.com slash take one. And now, for something completely different, we are so, so, so excited that our latest new show has premiered this week. It's called Anxiously, and it's hosted by two wonderful women, longtime friends, Lisa Sandel and Amy Friedman. So Amy and Lisa are anxious. They are very anxious people. Like many of us these days, things just seem to be getting us down. And each week, Lisa and Amy grapple with one of their anxieties, from the trivial to the existential, in a humorous and heartfelt way. From germs to mortality, they are really tackling it all. There's no anxiety too big or too small for them to take on. And they're helped along the way by smart and entertaining guests who offer perspective and advice and sometimes even homework. So we're really excited about this show. It's really, really fun. I mean, they're super smart women who are interrogating all of these anxieties. And they really ask themselves like, why am I freaked out by touching raw chicken at the supermarket? Is it is it salmonella? Is it maybe something deeper? Is it maybe about my mother? Is it maybe about feminism? I mean, they go deep. Is it
1: Salmonella or is it my mother? <laughs> (laughs)
0: I once saw someone who had a crocheted pillow that said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother.
1: Let me tell you, Stephanie, I am in love with the show. I'm also in love with one of the hosts of the show. (laughs) Uh, Lisa Anzendel is, of course, my my lovely and long-suffering wife. And this really, I think, is the podcast of the moment. Taking these subterranean feelings that we all feel that drives us crazy as we lay in bed at night on our phone, sort of staring at a screen that delivers nothing but news of plagues and political disasters and so much to feel anxious about and and really kind of working your way through it. And not just that, doing it with a friend and, and with smart people and in a way that kind of puts you, puts you back in a driver's seat.
0: We are so excited to air episode one. It's about the state of the world. Lisa and Amy are anxious about the state of the world. They are starting big. And their guest is the wonderful novelist Anne Royfe. She is this incredible feminist writer. She's just so smart and so wise about about history and about life and how to sort of get through the challenges of the day when they seem insurmountable. And she really helps put things in perspective. So what you're about to hear next is my interview. I got to interview Lisa and Amy about their new show. So you'll hear me interview Lisa and Amy briefly, and then you'll hear episode one of their show. We hope you enjoy it. We can't wait to hear what you think about Anxiously. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. So I am lucky enough to know the two of you, but our listeners don't, not yet at least. So can each of you tell us who you are? Sure. Hi, I'm Lisa Sandel.
3: And I'm Amy Friedman. And I have been a fan of Unorthodox from day one, from episode one. So it is so exciting to be here.
0: And Lisa, we should say you have a unique connection to Unorthodox. Will you tell us what or whom it is? I am married to your co-host, Liel Lebowitz. What's he like behind the scenes? Liel's been my
4: very, very best friend and partner for so long. And he's a wonderful husband. He's an amazing father.
0: I'll leave it at that. And so you are with us today. We are broadcasting into the ears of all the unorthodox listeners because you have a new show. It just launched yesterday. It's part of Tablet Studios. We're so excited. Will you tell me about Anxiously?
3: So Lisa and I are really good friends. We've been friends forever, and we have shared many, many anxieties with each other. We thought it might be helpful and maybe fun to share them with a larger audience and just talk about everything that stresses us out from family to sickness to raw chicken and kind of work through stuff together with a guest, too.
4: Each episode, we zero in on one topic that's really freaking us out that week, and we sort of work through it with the help of a fabulous guest who shares lots of wisdom and insights with us.
0: So I think a lot of us have that sort of like that one friend that they know they can text and say like, does this look weird? What are some of the things that the two of you off air before this podcast have sort of like asked each other about? Oh my God, what what isn't there? Because <laughs> you used to share an office, right? You literally worked in the same room all day long. Yes. I mean, it was everything. It was like, could you take a look at this
4: email that I'm drafting and let me know if it's okay? do you think it's okay to have a salad with romaine lettuce? Oh, the recall. Yeah. Was,
0: <laughs> yeah. Those were tough times. I mean,
3: the the best thing about Lisa is like, <laughs> I will start talking about something I saw in the news that made me anxious. She will already know what it is. Like, she'll cut me off. I'll be like, did you see that? And she's like, yes, the salmonella scare in California at 3 p.m. Like, it's amazing. So yeah, there was a lot of that. I feel like this podcast is really just like listening in on one of our typical conversations. <laughs> (laughs) We always end the show saying, I know you get it. Like, just knowing that someone gets it already helps enormously. Just having that understanding and
0: feeling seen. Or as my therapist calls it, seeking reassurance. Maybe sometimes too much,
3: reassuring. Right <laughs>
0: well, she doesn't say it as a good thing. The thing I love about the show, I am fully biased. I helped work on the show. I was so excited to sort of help the two of you conceive it and craft it. And I'm so proud of you to sort of have you out there in the world. There are three episodes out that our listeners can listen to. I think they're a really nice cross-section of what the show is. One is about wondering if you're still as cool as you used to be. And you have Simon Dunan, a friend of our show, friend of your show, on to sort of help you like find your flair, find your style and feel really confident. You have an episode about chicken and about sort of like being icked out by chicken in the supermarket, that like raw thing with the styrofoam and then also fears of being, you know, am I a good cook? Am I as good a cook as my mother? And then, of course, the episode that we're going to hear today, which is your conversation with Anne Royfi about just sort of like, I'm anxious about the world. And so the two of you are two Jewish women. You live in Manhattan. You know, the show isn't explicitly Jewish. Of course, it's part of our network, so it's sort of implicitly Jewish. Do you guys worry about falling into a stereotype, not just with this show, but in general of like this like whiny, like like I, I worry about that, too. Like if I'm like complaining about something, I mean, how do you sort of keep that in check as a, as a person and now as a podcaster?
4: I think there absolutely is a caricature of an anxious Jew. But I think that what I hope we do is, you know, we're human and it's a conversation between two friends looking to somebody else who might have some wisdom to impart and I hope that supersedes any hint of caricature.
3: There's so much I can say about this because, I mean, I was born anxious. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. I don't think it's a coincidence. <laughs> Stephanie and I actually remember learning, I must have been like a adolescent or something, that there was this stereotype of the anxious Jew because I that was just like me. It was actually sort of like a relief like and a joy to learn that. I was part of this grand tradition of anxiety. So I'm sort of all about embracing that. I, I feel like that's kind of fun to go
0: there. No, I love that. I love that idea. And I also, you know, the thing I like about the show is, you know, it's it's sort of a show about friendship. You know, like when you guys talk, it's, I, I do, I hear it. You're basically finishing each other's sentences, um, which is great. <laughs> but I do think there is a broader appeal, right? Because, you know, we're all anxious. It's a pandemic. I know that those are some of the topics you're going to be tackling with illness Death. I mean, you're gonna be tackling some real, some real shit. Of course, fun things mixed in. Like I think there's one about nature, right? And like, you know, bugs. I think that mix is really universal. If there has ever been a time to be anxious, it's now. And if there's ever been a time to sort of like try to tease your way through those anxieties and find out what's at the core of them in a safe space with friends, I love that idea. It's been really
4: fun to get at the deeper cores of some of these issues. And I think there's something really magical about doing it with my best friend.
0: Yay. Guys, I'm going to cry. So I'm so excited for you. I want to say mazel tov on the launch of Anxiously. And will one of you tell us about this episode we were about to listen to? So
4: Amy and I have been feeling very anxious about the state of the world, as I'm sure so many other people are right now. So we had the brilliant writer Anne Royfie on to share her perspective on life in turbulent times, really to put into perspective what this time is relative to other times in human history.
0: So, what you're saying is it could always get worse.
4: It could always <laughs> get worse. <laughs>
0: very, very Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much
3: for having us on, Stephanie. And as a fellow member of the J. Crew, I am so excited for the J. Crew to listen to our show. Here it is an episode of Anxiously.
0: This is Anxiously with Amy and Lisa. Now, here are your hosts, Amy and Lisa.
4: Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi, Lisa. I'm okay. I'm a little anxious. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Anxiously with me, Lisa,
3: and me, Amy.
4: So there is so much going on in this stressful new time, and there are so many things coming up to make us feel anxious, from germs to aging to raw chicken to family, and we are going to talk about it all. We've been
3: friends forever, and we even work together in the publishing industry in New York City, and until recently, we shared an office. And there was a lot of back and forth and talk in that office, ranging from, can you look at this email, does it look weird, to can you look at this mole, does it look weird?
4: So now we're working from home and we're finding that there's more than ever to be anxious about. We've always found that talking through our fears and our feelings and our anxieties about lettuce recalls has helped us put things into perspective. Plus, knowing someone always has your back and won't ever make fun of you for your particular neuroses is always an incredibly validating thing. We're so lucky to have each other. So
3: we're not therapists, and this show is not designed to be a replacement for actual therapy. We love therapy, but we're just two friends talking through the things that make us nervous, scared, or just
4: a little squeamish. We've been on this journey together for a really long time. Now we hope you'll join us and maybe even get something out of it along the way, too.
3: And you know, Lisa, really, I hate to be like an anxious hipster, but I've been anxious
4: since before it was cool. Anxious is my sort of permanent state these days. So how are you doing? I'm, you know, it's been... It's been a few weeks.
3: Yeah, it's been a year. It's been many years.
0: <laughs> <This is> true.
4: <laughs> it's been like a decade rolled into one year. Every time I think, okay, things have to get a little bit stable. Like we have to normalize. It just gets completely weirder. Yep. Right.
3: Yes. I mean, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, which, for a hypochondriac like me, is pretty much worst nightmare scenario come true. <laughs> and there's new mutations every
4: day. Yeah, I imagine you're reading rapidly about all those like too much. It's not good. <laughs> How are you coping with that? I feel like there are so many news stories to take me down rabbit holes till the wee hours of the night. It's hard to pinpoint just one theme to really fixate on. And now I've been trying to figure out how my parents can get vaccinated for COVID. They live in the state of Delaware, which is very, very small. And you would think that a small state would have things under control. Like, Israel's a small country, and they seem to be doing a really good job. Well, Delaware, not so much. And it's definitely stressing me out. And my parents seem to be taking it in stride, but I know it's unnerving for them, too. So that's... The newest stress. Oh, I'm
3: sure. I do feel like all the like ch- the obedient children were all rushing. We're all. I-, I texted my parents immediately. You know, oh, good news! 65 and up, you can get vaccinated. Right. But it does seem like whenever there's like a bit of good news or a ray of hope, there's some something new sprouts up like a horrible game of whack-a-mole, where like it just
4: <laughs> totally keeps
3: getting worse. Like I mean, we haven't even touched on like the sort of global political upheaval not just in America, but everywhere. That
4: seems to be without any (laughs) end in sight. To be capped off, maybe, although who knows what's next, by a guy wearing a Camp Auschwitz t-shirt at the (laughs) (laughs) Capitol.
3: Right. Like that's what I want to see in the year 2021. Things are really rough right now. Really rough. How do we cope? Like I know I have a tendency to crawl under the covers with literally bringing a carton of ice cream into the bed with <laughs> me and, and just binging Netflix and shutting out the world.
4: I feel like I swing between wanting to hide and burrow under the covers or feeling like, oh my gosh, we have to be super political and, and it's everywhere. It's like if you go on your friend's Facebook feeds, it's all there is. And yeah, I don't know, it just feels like this really Toxic cycle of swinging from feeling like we have to be super political and super on all the time to just wanting to hide. Yeah. And there, in like, is there a right way to be?
3: And yes, should I be frantically writing my Congress people all the time and going to marches and protests?
4: I feel like I keep going down memory lane thinking back to how when we were kids, it just seemed that the world was headed in such a good direction. And There was peace. The Cold War ended, and it just—everything seemed a little bit more innocent somehow.
3: I mean, obviously there were social ills, untold social ills in the world still at that time, but it is true that being in America, things—yeah, things just seem more stable somehow, and— there wasn't the internet. You really see that the internet is like a scourge of our of our time. It really is. Are we just feeling this way? Like, are we just looking at it through the lens of nostalgia because we were kids then and think life seemed simpler, and we weren't as attuned to the various problems going on? Or do you think it objectively has gotten worse?
4: I don't know. I I guess I imagine on some level, every generation goes through this as you reach adulthood or late adulthood and some shift happens. Maybe everybody says, oh, back in my day. But (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Objectively, things do kind of seem a lot worse. I mean, we do have a pandemic and, you know, a mob just rushed the Capitol. (laughs)
3: Yeah, But I guess the question is, what are the sort of healthy-ish coping mechanisms? We're not looking for the cure, but we're looking like how to kind of live our lives even with the anxiety in the background.
4: We are not the first generation to live through big seismic events, even if the current events feel really remarkable and extraordinary. We would like to look to somebody who has been through it before, and so we would like to welcome fellow warrior and warrior author Anne Royfe. And her adorable dog who wanted in on the interview, too. Anne Royfe is one of our greatest living writers. Her second novel, Up the Sandbox, was made into a movie starring Barbara Streisand, one of the first Hollywood films to explore the changing role of women in society following the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Her essays have been published in every magazine that counts, including Tablet, and she remains an astute, unorthodox, and thrilling thinker on everything from feminism to Judaism. Thank you so much for joining us, Anne.
5: Well, thank you, and thank you for the lovely introduction. I hope that there's Ah. still some things that I have yet to discuss that I haven't discussed yet, but (laughs) you never know.
3: So you've written and commented on and witnessed so many instances in American public life that have been tumultuous and difficult. Is there something particularly hard about this moment, though, would you say? Has it been worse before, or are things as bad as they seem?
5: Well, I was born before World War II. I was a little girl when they were marching in Yorkville, the Nazis. There was the Red Scare. There was McCarthyism, which I thought was the end of the world. And I thought it was the end of America and everything we cared about, and that the whole country was falling down and would fall apart. and I was related to Roy Collins, so I really knew what a bad character he was. And I was in college and I was very, very frightened then. I was also frightened because writers and artists were being blackballed. Any decent movie script writer had to flee to England. I mean, it was, they were very, very dangerous anti-American times, which we somehow glided out of. And, you know, then suddenly there are other kinds of problems. There's inequality, there's racism, there's there's always anti-Semitism, but it wasn't the kind that was going to frighten you. I mean, nobody was coming after us in our homes and banging on the doors. Though... It could have happened. It just, we're lucky it didn't. And I don't remember a straight 10-year period without there being reason to worry about the survival of the state. Now. Obviously, the state perfectly well survived, and not because I was worried. It just survived. So that has given me a certain kind of calm. I keep saying to my children who are roughly your age, this is going to change. Something else awful is going to happen. Just wait.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I relate to that very much.
5: (laughs) This isn't the end. This is just Part of the horrible, long, dangerous journey. This may be politically the most dangerous moment that I can remember, aside from McCarthyism. Because I really did think at that time that we were going to lose freedom of speech. That's really what it looked like. And people were so cowardly. I mean, you can't imagine, you know, people you thought were brave and decent would run if they saw a piece of paper in your hand asking for a signature. I never saw you. I don't know who you are. I never, I don't sign anything, I don't talk to anybody. People were really scared. And this is the way history goes. It gets pretty awful. Then it kind of the awfulness subsides a little and then it rises again. And what do we do? We hold on, we keep going. We have families. We keep hoping. We keep loving those we love and hating those we hate. <laughs> and it goes on, you know, whatever we do. That I have learned, finally, so that I don't get quite as desperate with each twitch of the historical (laughs) needle. That is good to hear.
4: Yeah, it is. It's a comforting perspective. There was an essay, I think in Tablet, where you wrote, my late psychoanalyst husband told me not to confuse the fate of the world with my own place in it. He was right, but I would still like to hear him tell me that again. I think that fits in so well with what you were just saying about having a sort of perspective.
5: Holding on to that perspective is not as easy as it sounds.
4: That's what I was going to ask
5: you. <laughs> but, but, you know, if we were in a car and the car skidded on the ice, and I would say, oh, my God, I think we're going to die. He would say, you're not the first person to skid on the ice. Don't worry. But
4: that doesn't make the skidding less terrifying,
5: right? Well, it doesn't exactly, except I'm not driving, he's driving. <laughs> and he was a slightly dangerous driver. <laughs> uh, well, he really thought he was a World War I flying ace, is what he really <laughs> thought <laughs> in his head. It, it simply means there is wow. a perspective that's not just what's happening to
3: you at a given moment. I like that analogy about skidding on the ice, because I feel like we're all skidding on the ice right now, but it is helpful to think we are not the first nor the last.
5: It's altogether helpful to put yourself in perspective, especially the most important place to remember that is about dying or sickness. In our own heads, our biology, our relationships, our thoughts are so important. But in the real world, what is it? It's a, You know, it's like a dandelion. You go and go, somebody's going to go, and it's all going to go. And the only way... To accept that is to accept it. You know that's all. It just it, you can have a religious response to you know somewhere I'm going to end up playing the harp, which would be a disaster for the rest of the dead people because I'm so non musical. <laughs> but, but if I mean, in reality, what is just going to happen is that biology will do what biology does. That's the way it is, and it is much. Better just to look at this realistically and accept it and not, not tell oneself fairy tales. It's
3: funny because Lisa and I, that was another question we had which was coping mechanisms and we were talking about the various things we do.
5: The thing is you change your point of view as you get older all the time. I mean things that are terrifying when you're 19 are not so terrifying. Things that you feel you just can't live without, you suddenly can live very well without. I don't even know why I'm I'm so much calmer than I used to be. Partially, I think, because I don't really feel the need anymore to write down everything. I mean, I used to feel that everything had to be written about. I shouldn't leave anything out. Of course, first of all, you can't write about everything without boring the world to death. Also, it's not necessary. From where you are, you say something. And that something is heard by someone. And that's good enough. The flip side of the hiding and the avoidance is
3: kind of like what you were saying with the writing to just doing instead, like overdoing maybe, you know, going to protests, getting really politically engaged, which I think obviously is great, but then that can become all-consuming in a way too, and you can become kind of frenzied almost.
4: So since Amy brought up politics, you'd mentioned that Roy Cohn was a relation. He was McCarthy's chief counsel, I think, and a mentor to Donald Trump. And when you were in college, you wrote him a letter chastising him for making the political arena feel so toxic. I'm wondering if he ever wrote you back.
5: No, he didn't write me back. But my father, who was doing small little jobs for him, because Roy had a practice as well, a law practice, um, in which he was handling divorces of very, he was doing work for Roy, who was handling divorces of very rich women. So um, you know, all, and I was hearing things like I in the living room. I walked across the floor one day, and I heard my father say, "Well, Judge, is fifteen thousand agreed on?" And I, you know, I'm listening, and there's some more talk. All right, twenty. That's it then. And I said to my father, "Were you bribing a judge?" And he said, "I was just creating an equal tribe. Wow. And Oh, I thought about that for a while, and then I thought, no, that's not, that won't do. But um, this is, you know, it was a very corrupt world. Um, and, um, and Roy was a monster.
4: Do you see some of that echoing in today's
5: political world? Well, of course, because nothing, you know, it's human nature, not, not you know, it's not some special ghoul. I mean, Trump was taught. By Roy Cohn, he had that same. He has that same kind of, you know, indifference to the human beings that are standing in his way, if they are standing in his way, and the sense that you can buy and sell anything. That you know there isn't a morality above what you get with your dollars, and that is very corrosive and terrible, and you know, and dangerous. He did his damage. And Roy did terrible damage. There were people, I mean, enormous numbers of people who had to flee this country. Um, decent writers who had no intention of overthrowing the government, but had, you know, had communist sympathies of the sort that we all have for, you know, whatever it might be at the moment. I mean, if he were sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean that you want to burn down Main Street. And, um, this is, you know, it was a, it was just a very bad time, but Roy Cohn is safely in the mausoleum that I wrote about, and we don't have to
3: worry about him. Right. I I always think about Angels in America yeah. when I think uh. of Roy Cohn, and oh yes, of course. Yeah, the, and the great death scene with um, Ethel Rosenberg. Anyway, uh,
5: that was a brilliant play. I mean, just brilliant.
3: And thank God for art and. And good art, and I feel like that sees us through and like like your books and your writing. Um, in an essay you wrote in Tablet a few years ago, you talk about your feminist journey and your Jewish identity and how they're so intertwined, which I found fascinating as a Jew and a feminist, and you wrestle with questions of God and the Holocaust, and how terrible things can happen, and kind of living with those uncertainties. I know this very keenly. I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. So can you talk a little bit about living with those uncertainties, which often lead to anxiety, and how how you kind of reached a place of understanding?
5: The entire Jewish community has anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. And the anxiety, the political anxiety, is that this can happen again. Ordinarily, you put that as far away from you as you can, because realistically we are not threatened at this particular moment. I mean, nobody is rounding us up, but it hangs there in an awful kind of way. And I think we have to be vigilant. I'm heartbroken about Israel because it will not do for us what I had hoped it would do for us. Would you like me to tell you how my feminism clashed with my Zionism? It's a very embarrassing story, but <laughs> I graduated from high school at 17, and uh, it was 1953, and Israel was around, and I was very excited about it, and I really wanted to go to Israel. My mother wouldn't hear of it, you know, possibly it's and, so and I was going to college in the fall, and there was the summer, so I had a brilliant idea. My idea was to go to the Metropolitan Museum and walk the halls every day for a few hours. And some Israeli soldier who was home visiting his mother was going to see me and fall in love with me and take me back to Israel. Did it occur to me to buy a ticket? No. Did it occur to me to save a little money so that I could buy a ticket or work so I could buy a ticket? No. It occurred to me that if I sit on this bench, somebody will come. Some man, some male will come and rescue me, which was such a 50s way of coping. It's embarrassing because it's so absurd. If any of my children said something like that, I would kill them. But (laughs) it was so real and a real possibility, which, of course, nobody ever came. I think
4: we've all had these fantasies that are kind of silly and embarrassing in retrospect. Um, But more recently in August of this past year in 2020 you wrote in this my 84th year of life i often feel peaceful and so i guess do you think that peace and wisdom and and the perspective that we've been talking about the ability to look at the events that are unfolding in real time and and really like to recognize that there is a grander scale and this is a small piece of a much larger puzzle comes with age or is it something that people in their 40s, for instance, (laughs) could learn to really accept and
5: embrace? Oh, I, I definitely think it's something that people in their 20s can feel or know or have a kind of airplane view of their own lives. I've known people like that. Very young. I mean, I don't really just think it's age. Partially, it's easier with age because you've been through enough so you can see that, you know, this looks like the most terrible moment of anybody's life, anytime, anywhere, and then it fades into the next moment, which is much better, and then the moment after that, which isn't quite so good anymore. But, you know, you get used to the up and down and the better and worse. And there's a lot of it for everybody. I mean, I don't think anybody walks through with. No disaster ever.
4: Do you think having children brings it into sharper relief, the ability to put things into perspective, or the terror on the other end?
5: Well, I think the terror is worse when you have children, because it's not just for yourself, it's for your child. And that's, I would say, a thousand times tougher to deal with. If one had a child who had cancer, sometimes I imagine it, and I think, you know, I wouldn't could I have made it through? And that's even with other children in this fantasy who are not having cancer. So, you know, you have you would have to keep yourself together for the others. But at the same time, what would you, how would it be? How could you do? And if somebody, you know, if somebody attacks this incredible kind of love we have for children, your own children hopefully for more than your own children, but it starts with your own children or it ends with your own children, it's almost unthinkable. And I think it's dangerous. In other words, living is dangerous. The alternative is not to live. And, you know, that—that that is not a choice. Just not a choice. I mean, you have to take the risk of all kinds of things or you don't live at all.
3: There's something soothing about that, in, in a way, living is da- it is dangerous like it, there's something freeing about it saying yeah that that's just that's true, I
5: mean, because you do, you can't come to every crossroads and figure out the safest way to negotiate across the street because there probably isn't a safest way. you just have to move on to the next street, and sometimes you'll be hurt, that's. You know, sometimes a car comes and smashes
3: you. I think that's my struggle is I I am always trying to find the safest crosswalk. And (laughs) you spend a lot of time doing that and a lot of energy. and yeah. Well, if you find one, you know,
5: let me
3: know. I will. (laughs) You seem, in general, very at peace. And we thank you for that, for giving us that perspective. What, if anything, makes you anxious?
5: I was scared of focus until my husband died wake up one morning and there's a roach and he's not here to get rid of it so I don't scream which would have been my usual habit and I don't yell and I get up and I get a piece of paper and I squish it and I throw it out and I think okay that's what I do with bugs <laughs> and so you know you just learn how to make do
4: through with what you got. Well, thank you so
5: much. Oh, you're most welcome. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Uh, It
4: was such an honor.
5: Oh, please. I'm delighted to talk to both of you.
4: Amy, she was incredible. She was so wise. And I just feel much more calm, I guess. How about you?
3: That was amazing. I feel so centered and (laughs) I just wanted to keep on listening to her. I wish we were living in different times where we could go and get drinks with her and (laughs) just talk and talk. That did make me feel better about the state of the world. It, It really did give such much needed perspective.
4: So what are you doing this week to sort of chill out and feel less anxious?
3: Well, I wish I had like a recording of Anne Royfe to listen to <laughs> before bed every night. In lieu of that, there, I haven't actually tried this yet, but a friend of mine recommended Headspace apparently is on Netflix now. Oh, really? Yeah, I will investigate that. And maybe instead of using Netflix to escape, I can use it to cope with my anxious feelings and see. So for people who don't know, Headspace is like a meditation app. And I'm not sure how it's different on Netflix, but I am curious to try it. So I will report back to you and see if that—
4: Yeah, I'll be curious to hear what it's like. I'm a big fan of meditation. I did the transcendental meditation course a few years ago, and I used to practice it daily, pretty religiously, and then, I I don't know, life got in the way and I stopped, and I miss it. So I hope you find some peace there.
3: How about you? you? What are you turning to to calm down?
4: So in the 90s, I was a big hockey fan, like big. And when I was in college, I used to go to Philadelphia Flyers games all the time. I stopped watching hockey. You know, I just stopped having time and it just wasn't a priority. Well, my husband started watching hockey after dissing it in a very serious way. He started watching hockey and it's been very... Fun and relaxing. Really? You find hockey,
3: you
5: find
4: like men hurling
3: around ice and getting into fights and stuff relaxing. (laughs) Okay, I get it. I mean, yeah, people watch boxing and find it relaxing. There
4: are far less fights than you would think, actually. Yeah.
3: Hmm.
4: When I was in college, I also went to a lot of minor league hockey games, and that's where the real fighting happens. (laughs) A lot of blood in minor league hockey. (laughs) So after all
3: that, are you feeling less anxious?
4: I really am. That was a really wonderful conversation. You?
3: Yeah. No, I also feel much calmer. I mean, I don't think the world is going to magically improve anytime soon, but it's good to just know that we'll get through it.
4: Absolutely. And as we always say, Amy, I know you get it.
3: And for everyone listening, we hope you get it too. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.
0: That was Anxiously, our newest podcast from Tablet Studios. We are officially up and running and we have so many other great shows in the works for you. So if you like what you just heard, we have two more episodes of Anxiously that have launched this week as well. You can find all of them by searching Anxiously in your podcast app or by going directly to tabletmag.com slash anxiously. If you liked what you heard, please, please, please rate and review the show on iTunes. Reviews are so important for new shows in the podcast algorithm ecosystem. And while you're at it, rate and review Take One. And even Unorthodox, rate all the shows that you listen to, but especially ours. We cannot thank you enough. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. We are doing virtual live events. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. Head to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to find our unorthodox shirts, mugs and onesies for those cute babies in your life. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. It's my favorite place on the internet. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sara Fredman-Ader. Our associate producer is the wonderful Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. We come to you from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios, now with more for you to listen to. Shalom, friends. Join our Facebook group. It's on Facebook.